morning. How are we, Chili Bible? Everybody's asleep even before I got up here. How about that? That's a new record <laughs> right there. <laughs> All right. Uh, I hope you seriously are doing well. We're entering an exciting time of the year. Uh, small groups, Awana, Mops, Men's Fraternity, all kicking off soon. Adopt-a-Block with Cheryl and her, her volunteers are chugging along, visiting with people in the community and meeting their needs and sharing the gospel. It's a great thing. Um, uh, wanted to thank you all, first of all, uh, for last week. You know, last week as I was standing up here, Karen was at the ER, and a couple of ladies were here with her, and were there with her, uh, Linda Greiner and uh, Sandy Dunbar went down to be with her so I could preach here, and that was a great thing. Uh, that's the Church of Jesus Christ in action, and uh, Karen, if you didn't see her, just snuck out the back there to go lead Children's Church, um, but she is doing very much better, and uh, those cysts that she has are shrinking, and she is pain-free as of today, so... Uh, that's a very good thing, especially since we are leaving to go celebrate our anniversary on Friday. So <laughs> anyway, uh, we, uh, we've been looking forward to that trip for a long time. She's very excited. Uh, well, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12 uh, this morning. And uh, the apostle in Hebrews 12 is writing a chapter that's basically a long analogy, if you will, of the Christian life to a race. Uh, and so you have Jesus as the great example of the one who has already finished the race and who is waiting for us there along with all the saints of old who have gone before and who, are, who finished the race and who are now in the stands waiting on us to uh, run our race and watching us as we do. But Jesus is our great example. He's the one who is the author and the finisher of the race of faith that we run. And then last week, we looked at all of the hardships that we go through along the way. Uh, that just as if you're training for the Olympics or training for another sport, you have a lot of discipline and hardship that you go through. I mean, I love to watch all the videos, the backstory videos that they have uh, with the Olympics coverage of all of the agony and the practices and the being up at four in the morning to go, you know, swim 1,500 meters uh, today, and then, you know, and then another 1,500 meters later, and then, oh my gosh, here we go, another one, you know, and, and some of these guys, the discipline and the, uh, and the physical exertion and the years and years of preparation and hardship that they go through for literally that solitary moment of glory where they stand on that platform and the anthem plays. And they, did anybody watch Phelps last night? Swim his last race? And he's there with his team and they're standing on the gold medal platform, 23 gold medals, 28 medals overall. And he's there with his team, and it's his last race, and the anthem plays, and right under the flag is his family seated. And he has just got tears just running down his face. And it's a great moment, because you know that this is the end of all of all that training, all of that suffering, all of the years and years of your life being dedicated to this. 
now you're in glory. Now this, year, this week, we're not going to get to glory. You've got to come back next Sunday and listen to Pastor Stephen tell you about what it's like to cross the finish line. And, ten, you know, and thousands and thousands of angels and festal assembly and all of that. Okay, that's going to be a great message. Uh, anybody can preach that message. It's a, it's a fantastic <laughs> passage. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's it's going to be great. And you need to be here and hear it because Stephen is a great pastor and it's going to be awesome. Okay. So now that I've built it up, he's probably mad at me, but, <laughs> but it's going to be awesome. Okay. Um, but this week, this week is about some of the uh, some of the troubles that come along the way as you're running the race, and how what what to do after you hit the wall, after um, after things get hard. You're not done yet, but things have gotten hard and they've gotten difficult, and you still have to keep pressing forward. So um, let's uh, let's pray, and then let's let's read some some scripture together. God, our heavenly Father, we thank you that you are with us, not just at the beginning of our faith, not just at the beginning, not just at the end, but you're with us every moment of every day, hard days good days, when the miles we're running are easy, and when we have hit the wall and we're just relying on sheer discipline and training to gut it out one more mile. Father, we thank you that you're with us, and that you love us all the way through. And Father, um, we, uh, we pray as we study your word that you would open it up to us. Help us not only to understand it, but be to, to be transformed by it. Father, we want our lives to look like Jesus. And we pray that you would be in this service, helping us to become a little bit more like him today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can, if you watch the Olympics, and I've watched a lot of Olympic coverage because I love it. I, I think that it's, it's a celebration of excellence at a human level that is just amazing. And what you learn if you watch the Olympics is that how you finish matters a lot. Amen? Not just, not just whether or not you get on the medal platform, but you've got to push your body wire to wire if you want to even be competitive at this. And, you know, I love watching Phelps swim because he has come back, his, his story is so great. He's come back from really a period of just narcissistic self-destruction to trying to get his life square and trying to do this Olympics right because he didn't, he felt, do the last one right. And... He's at an age when a lot of the very top swimmers have already retired, and that gives me hope. 
as well, right? It's just like when Nolan Ryan was still pitching at 40. You know, all of us old guys were like, go Nolan, <laughs> right? Get a no, another no-hitter, all right. Old guys can still do stuff, right? Um, I think it was good for the orthopedic industry, most of all. Um, but uh, in any case... Uh, when you, what you see, if you watch enough of the Olympics, you'll see that a lot of athletes, not just in swimming or, or basketball or baseball or whatever, when they, uh, you know, they take off like they are shot out of a cannon. And they just, you know, you're like, man, that guy is going like a person possessed. And then as things go on, they just kind of fade away, Right? And they just kind of quit. And you can see it. You can, and, they, and they're starting to just start mentally preparing for losing. And they're just starting to quit before the race is over. And a lot of Christians, incidentally, do the same thing. They come to faith in Jesus, and I mean they take off with their hair on fire. They are just serving everywhere. They're sharing Jesus with everybody they run into. You know, they're talking to the checkout girl at the grocery about Jesus, and they're talking to their family about Jesus, and they're talking to their neighbors about Jesus, and talking to their boss. And oh, can't you? Can, I just can't tell you how my life has changed since I met Jesus, right? And it's awesome, and I love new believers on that basis. I just enjoy them so much. And then a lot of times, what happens is, is that they just kind of quit. And they look back on that period of their life as like, yeah, well, you know, all of us have got to get realistic sometime, and I got grass to mow, you know. And they, and they just kind of give up, right? They just kind of quit in the middle of the race. And what has happened to them is very often that they've had some hardship or some difficulty that they go through. And to use the term from the marathon, they have hit the wall. And they are not sure that they can continue all the way to the end. And we want to be prepared. And we want to finish our race well. Amen? We don't want to just start off like a ball of fire. We want to finish and bring honor to, and glory to the Lord all the way to the end of the race. And so we want to get some, some preparation on how to do that here from Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 12 to 14. He's going to give us some instruction on that. He says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, these verses here are, you, you get, you're going to get a parallel in this section and then the next uh, few verses after it, uh, what to do and what to avoid doing when you go through the race of, of the Christian life. And these verses, these three verses are what to do if you want to finish well. And to finish well, you're going to need to do three, you're going to need to run three, with three things. And the first thing you're going to need to run with is strength. In verse 12, the apostle says, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. And he does that because he is writing a letter to a group of people 
who are tempted to quit, to just say the heck with this whole Christian stuff. I'm done with it. I'm tired. I'm wore out. I, I'm under persecution. I'm suffering. I don't want to deal with this anymore. And they're just tempted just to shelve the whole thing. And if you watch the marathon, and, and, and the marathon is a hard one to watch because it takes so long to run 26 miles, but, they, but marathoners typically hit the wall right around 20 miles. They get to where they feel like, I cannot go any further, and they keep going. They have to mentally discipline themselves to keep going, but you can see somebody who is not going to finish. You can identify them. You can, you can watch their body and see what happens because they go from here where they're running and pretty soon their hands get real loose and they start just hanging and flopping. And then, and then their legs start to get loose and they just start to kind of, and their, their knees kind of go like this and they're like, oh, this guy's about to go down right? And that's what the apostle here is talking about. He's like, got to get your arms back up. You got to get your knees back strong. And you've got to run on the course that is marked out for you. That's what he means about making level paths for your feet. Years ago, there was a marathon, a women's marathon that was, that was won in record time. And this gal comes across the line, and I mean, she is coming across. She could be eating a sandwich while she comes across the line. And, and, and everybody's like, hmm, that was weird. You know, no one had ever seen this person. She's dressed. She's sweaty. She's wet. And, and she, but no one has seen this person along the way. So what happened? Well, what had happened was this. I believe it was the New York City Marathon. She started the race with everybody else, took off, and then she got on the subway <laughs> and rode to about three miles to the end, got off, and finished the race. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, that's one way, okay. But, but, you can't, but the point that the apostle is making is you can't just pick whatever pathway across the finish line that you want. He says, when he says you've got to make level paths for your feet, he's talking about you run in the course that God has marked out for you. You don't just create your own pathway. You run on the straight road that leads to glory. And, and you've got to strengthen your weak knees and lift up your drooping arms because when you're running that kind of a race, form matters. It matters intensely. In fact, if you start to get all loose like that, what will happen is you'll get hurt. And you'll get hurt badly. And so he, that's why he's saying, so that, what, so that what is lame, in other words, you're starting to cramp up a little bit, okay, but if you keep doing the way you're doing, you're going to get hurt. So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Because when a Christian hits the wall and wants to quit, he or she starts looking for other pathways to run on than the one that God has marked out. And following those pathways is not going to lead to more strength and to healing, but instead will turn a limp into a crippling injury. 
And the point of verses 12 and 13 is that if we want to finish well, we've got to run with strength. You've got to maintain your form. You've got to stay true to your training, and you've got to stay on the course marked out for you. And if you don't, you're going to get badly injured. So run with strength. And the second thing you're going to need to do to finish your race well is to strive for peace. Now, this is a, this is a strange combination, these two words. Uh, the words translated strive there in my Bible is, is what Pastor Kent Hughes calls a uniquely aggressive word. It, and, it, and it literally means it, it's used in most contexts in a military context, about running down your enemies to kill them. <laughs> okay. And so he says that kind of pursuit for peace. Not to kill your enemies, but for peace. Uh, how many of y'all are, are, are remember a, a TV show that was called The Dukes of Hazard? Have you seen this? Okay. Or seen this like on TV Land or one of these, right? Okay, now, the Dukes of Hazard is, is, I mean, it's, it's my family on TV, essentially, okay? I've got, got some folks from northern Alabama that are part of my family tree. They're probably in there somewhere, moonshiners and whatever, okay? But anyway, it's about these two guys and their family, and they're always running for the law, right? Uh, running from the law for various whatever is going on. Uh, hilarity ensues, right? And you've got this sheriff that's on the show, and his name is Roscoe P. Coltrane. Do you remember him? He got a dog, a big basset hound named Flash. Uh, kind of ironic name, right? And um, and Roscoe is always chasing these guys through every episode of the show for like what is it, six seasons or something like this, right? He never catches them, but he's always chasing them. And when he when he sees a lawbreaker, what does he say? We're in what? Hot pursuit. <laughs> okay, we're in hot pursuit. Yeah, I know some of y'all have seen it. All right. All right. Now, uh, kids in the 80s had the best TV shows. They did. All right. But anyway, we're in hot pursuit, right? And he'd put the lights on, and I mean, they're peeling out. They're laying gravel and dirt everywhere, you know, racing through Hazard County, Kentucky. And... Um, and that is kind of the idea that you are in hot pursuit of peace with your brothers and sisters. Because the Christian life is not something, by the way, that you live on your own. Remember, uh, Christianity is not a solo sport. It's not a solo sport, it's a team sport. And so, whenever somebody says, as an example, that they are a Christian but they do not go to church, I'm like, so you're married without a spouse? I mean, how, is this, how does this work, right? I mean, it's that kind of idiotic notion uh, that Christianity is a, is a team effort. It's a team sport. But if you put people together for very long, what starts happening? Everybody realizes, uh, oh, that person's a sinner. Ooh, hmm, that person's a sinner. Guess what? I'm a sinner. And we put us all together and we fight, Right? Because sooner or later, everybody's soon sin nature more or less comes out. And so he says, if you're going to finish well, you're going to have to strive for peace. You're going to have to chase it down. 
It isn't going to just come naturally that you're going to just have peace with everybody. You're going to have to pursue this. It's going to require some effort. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be comfortable. You're going to have to work at it. You're going to have to strive for peace. And and we run together. And you know how you can tell? You know how I can always tell how a team is going to do? Listen to the media reports about the locker room. When you got a football team where everybody is, is, man, we're a team. We're pulling together, and, you know, I'm going to line up behind my quarterback, and, uh, and we've been running routes, and, man, we're unified. We're enjoying life. They're going to have a great season, right? But when you start hearing about a team where, man, everybody hates the coach, and, you know, that quarterback may think he's a hot shot, but we'll show him, <laughs> right? Guess what's going to happen? You all aren't going to the Super Bowl, <laughs> right? You all are going to have a season like the Bears had last year, right? Um, because, if you, because when you're a team, you have to be at peace with one another in order to accomplish the objective, right? And if you're all at war, this doesn't work. This doesn't work at all. And you don't get to where you're trying to go. And so you've got to not only run with strength, you've got to run, with, run at peace with other people on your team. And in addition to that, there's one more thing that's required if you want to run well, and that is striving for holiness. Now again, it, grammatically here, if you look at the text, the word striving is, is, is the controlling verb for not just peace, but holiness. So it's just, just, just as you are to be in hot pursuit of peace with one another, you've also got to be in hot pursuit of holiness. And the apostle tells us why. He says, because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, let me back up a second here and make sure I'm being really, really clear, because I don't want anybody to be confused by this. How do you become a holy person? Well, it begins at your salvation. You put your trust in Jesus Christ. You believe that He is the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins, and that He was raised from the dead to give new life to you. And at that moment, you have what is called imputed righteousness or imputed holiness. In other words, holiness from God has been credited to your account. And you are regarded in the sight of God as possessing holiness, even though it's not native to you. It's essentially borrowed from Jesus. And you have imputed righteousness. Or to use a theological term out of the book of Romans that, I, that we'll look at next year. Uh, you are justified before God. You have righteousness credited to your account. You are justified before God. And so, to put it another way, you are saved. You are born again. You are regenerated. You are redeemed. You are you are a person who has been declared holy in the sight of God because the blood of Christ covers over you and your sin. Now, following that, we are commanded 
to grow in, let me give you another theological word here, your sanctification, which is your practical holiness. In other words, that what God has declared to be you to be, you actually start to become as the Holy Spirit indwells you and changes you and transforms you from the inside out. That what that you start to live up to the declaration that God has made about you, that you are holy, you are becoming holy by, as the Holy Spirit dwells within you. So in other words, it's not that we pursue holiness in order to get salvation, but that we pursue holiness as a result of having received salvation. Understand? But nevertheless, your sanctification should progress if you possess justification. In other words, if you have authentically put your trust in Jesus Christ and, and been born again and been redeemed from sin and death, then you ought to possess the Holy Spirit. And if you do possess the Holy Spirit within you, you necessarily will be transformed in the way that you live. But it is something that requires effort. And the fact that we are saved by grace is not antithetical to the fact that you also work at your sanctification. That this is something that you pursue. Because your sanctification proves that your justification is real. That your transformation into someone who looks more like Jesus proves that you actually have the Holy Spirit living within you. And if you do not grow in holiness, it's because you probably have not been declared holy to begin with. And so when the apostle says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord, what he means is that a person who isn't striving to conform his or her life to the will of God is not a believer and will not see the Lord. They will not be in heaven. Because your sanctification, your pursuit of holiness, certifies that you possess justification in a real way. And if there's been no change in your life since you came to faith in Jesus, it may be that you didn't come to faith in Jesus. It may be that you uh, got excited one day at a rally or something and said whatever people wanted you to say, but your heart was unchanged. And you need to experience the real thing. And then, as a result of that, seek the Lord and pursue righteousness so that you can see the Lord in glory. Amen? Holiness is one of the key proofs of our salvation, so it is something we have to pursue. All right. Now, in addition to these things that we must do, there are some obstacles to avoid, and I want to show you those here in the uh, verses 15 down through verse 17. The apostle says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. 
that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now before the Olympics came on, my, my, uh, my family and I, we were watching Spartan Ultimate Team Challenge. Now this is a lot of fun. Uh, it's a competition with all kinds of weird obstacles. You know, they're like crossing water on a tire swing. You know, they've got a trapeze, and they're jumping onto these pillows, pillows that are out floating in the water. They're, they're crossing, you know, a big fire pit that they've got out there. They're throwing javelins. They're doing all kinds of weird stuff, and it's highly entertaining. Uh, moving telephone poles. Um, and all the while, it's a one-mile course with all these obstacles on it. And all the while, the whole course is covered in mud. All right, so they're slipping and sliding and all this greasy mud that's out there. And it's hilarious to watch. And we are at the Horn House, we are rooting for a team called the Muddy Minglers. Okay, and the Muddy Minglers are all over 40, three men, two women, um, because, hey, we're over 40 and we like that, all right? And they get all the way to the championship. And you know how they got there? It was not because they were the fastest, because there were a lot of teams that were younger and healthier and faster than they were. But they worked together as a team. And they were the oldest competitors out there, but they kept on winning because they learned how to win together. And if you look at the apostles' exhortations here in verse 15, it's addressed to everybody who's reading his letter. And so it says, see to it that no one fails to obtain God's grace. And then you can read that same verb again. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau. It's a reminder that Christianity, again, is a team sport. And you're supposed to be looking out for your brothers and sisters as we run. And if you make it across the finish line, but you let some of your brothers and sisters get entangled by an obstacle, that is not a win. And so you're to help each other and hold each other accountable. And we're to take responsibility for each other and encourage each other. And we're to be, in fact, in a sanctified way, intrusive a bit in each other's lives. To be to be in some sense rude and nosy about what is going on with each other. And to say, how's it going? How you doing? Uh, what's happening in your life here? And the obstacles that are mentioned are not funny. And they're not just challenging, and they're certainly not any of them entertaining like in a Spartan race. Instead, they are deadly and they are dangerous, and there are four of them. And the first one is the, is the obstacle called apostasy. And when the ap apostle mentions failing to obtain the grace of God, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about people who at one point in their lives enjoy the church and they enjoy fellowship with other, other uh, people in the church. 
Uh, maybe they even make an initial profession of faith, but later on they go out from the church and they live like the unconverted people that they are. And we need to do our utmost to make sure that everybody who is part of the church has the real deal. You know, when you get a, a vaccination, do you know what they do? They take the real virus or the real bacteria and they either weaken it or they kill it. And then they inject it into your body so that you build antibodies against getting the actual disease so that you don't get smallpox or polio or MMR or one of those, right? Uh, you, you, that, you don't, that you don't contract one of these, you know, sleeping sickness or what have you, right? But they give you a weakened or dead form of the real thing so that you don't actually contract the real thing. And one of the things that can happen in the lives of some people is that that's what happens to them. They get inoculated against getting really Christian. They get a weakened or a dead form of the virus. And instead of getting actually infected with Christianity, they get inoculated against it. And so then they go out into the culture, and they say, you know, I want nothing to do with, with organized religion and the church and all of that stuff, man, because I've been there, I've done that, i got the shirt, and nothing about it is real. And is that true? No, that's not true. The problem is they never got the full dose of the real thing. And we are responsible for each other. To make sure that the faith that we're passing on to each other is the real deal. Is the genuine article. Is not a dead or weakened form of the real thing. Amen? He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. The worst tragedy I can imagine as a pastor is that I would preach to somebody and love somebody and visit them in the hospital and have them in my small group and do all that we do together as, as in ministry and that they would then die and go to hell. That is the worst thing I can imagine. Because here they were at the hospital where six sinners get well. And instead of fixing them, we left them in their condition. That is the worst thing I can imagine. And so he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That all of you cross the finish line. That's the goal. Amen? And the second obstacle is bitterness. That no root of bitterness springs up. Sometimes people talk as if, as if the really big issues in churches and what really is a problem for churches is like the headliner sins. Right? And I've seen, I've seen churches that go down on one of these, so I don't want to minimize this at all. But, you know, they, they talk about something like, well, you know, there was, 
there was, uh, you know, the abuse of the pastor's authority, or there was adultery, or there was some other, you know, somebody got divorced that was in a key position of leadership, and, you know, all this mess that was going on. But you know what kills churches day in and day out? Bitterness. Bitterness that results from anger and unconfessed sin. Where two people get sideways with each other and they can't figure out how to say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, to each other. And then, instead of repenting of that, what they do is they feed it and they encourage it and they talk to 17 other people and build that thing up. And pretty soon you have a real nice bitterness plant, not like this, right, that everybody can see, <laughs> all right, that everybody can see this thing bearing fruit in your life. And you're a bitter, angry person. And they're a bitter, angry person. And people choose up sides. And you want to destroy a church, go ahead and do that. Because this is the way. Bitterness, unforgiveness, unrepented of sin. See to it that no root of bitterness. And this is what he's saying. Remember when he says that by it many become defiled. Because we all like to sweep in everybody to our side, right? Did you see what she said to me? Did you see what he did to me? Right? Let me tell you what he did to me. And you understand what I'm saying? I've seen this. I've lived through this. See to it that no root of bitterness is allowed to grow in your heart or in anybody else's either. So when we get sideways with each other, and by the way, I'll just assure you, I've got enough sin to go around, all right? And so do you. And so when, so when, not if, when we get sideways with one another, then we need to sit down and we need to talk so that no root of bitterness grows up. And we need to say, I was wrong. I am sorry. Please forgive me. Amen? Now, next thing. He says, the last two obstacles are mentioned here in verse 16, sexual immorality and unholiness. Your translation may read godless. Uh, these two things are linked by the fact that they're both forms of idolatry. That what you're doing is you're exchanging the living and holy God for something else. And what you're doing when you commit sexual immorality is you, for the fulfillment of your sex drive above the worship and obedience to God. And you put, you put the fulfillment of temporary pleasure ahead of your relationship with the Lord. And if you are unholy or godless like Esau was, you exchange eternal promises and rewards for temporary pleasures, disregarding the things of God so you can get whatever you want right now. Now, Esau was the firstborn son of a man who had a promise from God that he would be 
the founder of a great nation and that kings would come from him and that the blessing to all the nations would come through his line. And this guy not only was ruled by his sex drive, I mean, the guy had three wives that we know of and maybe some others that we don't know of. Um, But this guy is out on a hunting trip somewhere, and when he comes back, he says, now not to say that making, going hunting makes you godless, just to be clear, all right? <laughs> but when he comes back, when he comes back, his brother is cooking some red lentil stew. And he says, hey, give me some of that stew over there. And his brother says, well, I'll give you some, but first you've got to sell me your birthright. In other words, first you've got to sell me your, your, your right to be the firstborn son, to receive the primary blessing from dad, the blessing that comes connected to a covenant with God. Now, how many of y'all would trade that for a bowl of soup? Okay, and Esau, but Esau is ruled by his belly, and so he says, "Oh, fine, you know, whatever, man. What good is it if I'm dead? Give me that stew, right?" And he swapped eternal, eternal blessings from God in order to eat a single meal. Now I've had some good soup, okay. I mean, the broccoli cheddar soup down at Panera in the bread bowl that you eat after the soup is gone uh, is fantastic, all right? And again, as I say before, every fat cell in my body sings the hallelujah chorus, right? When you tear into that. And it's great, all right? But there is no conceivable way that I'm trading a $5 bowl of soup for the blessing of God. And what he is saying here is this. He says, look after one another so that nobody swaps things of eternal value for a little temporary pleasure. Can Christians do that? Yes, they can do that. God forbid there are pastors who have done that. But there are also people in the pews who do that. Amen? They swap, they swap the blessing of God for the fulfillment of their temporary physical desires. And he says, see to it that none of you make a decision to live your life like Esau. Because afterward, Esau came to his senses and he went back to his brother and to his father and he wanted the blessing of God from his father again. And guess what? It wasn't available. And it isn't because God is withholding or God is ungracious, but because some sin have permanent consequences that cannot be undone. And it is not that God did not forgive Esau or that he would not forgive us if we go down this road. It is that sometimes some sins are so serious that they cannot be undone. 
and you get to live with that limp for the rest of your life. And so out of love and compassion and care for each other, we are to encourage and watch over and shepherd each other to make sure nobody gets a lifelong injury. Amen? Because if we really love each other, we'll love each other enough to intervene when we see someone about to do something galactically stupid and permanently damaging. You got to reach out and intervene. And far better to have someone say, I don't know why you're asking me about this. It's none of your business. To which you can say, it is my business. Pastor Joe told me it was my business. It's in my Bible, okay? <laughs> okay, we are each other's business. Because we're family. And love requires intervening when somebody is doing something destructive. Amen? If I see my kids sticking a, sticking a, a, a screwdriver in a light socket, I don't sit there and watch to see what happens. And I don't go, well, it's none of my business. I mean, really, none of my concern. Uh, you know, watch him get shocked. That'll be fine. He'll, he'll learn his lesson. No, the loving thing to do is say, hey, you're about to get hurt, right? Not to wait till after he gets shocked and then explain that he's grounded in every sense of the word, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, don't do that, right? You don't do that. If you love your kid, you intervene before they get hurt, not after, right? And the same thing is true in the body of Christ, that we watch one another because it matters very much more how you finish than how you started. And we want to finish well. We need to finish well. Not everybody in the Bible does. In fact, read your Old Testament, read your New Testament, you'll see a whole lot of people who started great and finished poorly. We want to finish well. We don't want to go out like a rabbit off to the races in the beginning and give up and quit before we get to the end. So we need the Holy Spirit to fuel our effort, and we need one another to help each other out along the way. So let's pray. Father, I pray that we would indeed finish well, that we would all cross the finish line as a team, giving praise to the Father who sent the Son to be the Savior and who gave us the Holy Spirit to change our life and to enable us to run well. Father, we pray that we would run well and that by the grace-fueled Holy Spirit-empowered effort, we would attain the holiness that you have already declared us to possess. May we actually live it out. Father, help us to care for one another in every way and to be intrusive enough to help each other when it's obvious that we need it. Rescue us from our independence and our 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 unforgiveness and our resistance to wanting help and our pride that says we don't need any. And help us, Father, to cross the line together, loving each other well and finishing well 
and bringing you glory. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.